Amen. Wow. And well done, Providence. That's, that's overwhelming. That's, that's fantastic. Uh, I don't have to tell the kids. They know it's time to head back. Uh, in case anyone missed it, uh, ages uh, three through first grade, uh, children are able to go back to children's worship now. And the rest of us would turn. Okay. Turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll begin reading in verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But remember the former days, when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of suffering, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourself a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Father, we're moved as we see the pictures of uh, these children all around this world, living in uh, difficult places, living in poverty, and yet your gospel has come to those places with a message of hope. We pray for those children as we pray for our children and children's worship. And we ask our God that your word will go forth with power in their lives. That you'll change their lives. That you'll strengthen them. And that they will love you more than anything else. And for us, Lord, as we look to your word, we pray that you will build inside us a faith which will endure difficulties and which will continually pursue you. We ask that you'll do this for Jesus' sake. Amen. We've gone over this a, a few times as uh, I was talking with a, a, a pastor this last week and as happens among pastors, one of the questions that comes up from time to time is, what are you preaching, right? And as I mentioned, well, I'm, I'm wrapping up Hebrews, our two-year study of that, and, and he kind of looked at me in like, two years? And it's like, well, yeah, it's, it's been a, a little while. But remembering what Hebrews is about and why Hebrews was written, Hebrews was written to first century Jewish Christians. These are individuals who grew up in the Jewish community. They grew up possibly even before Jesus had, had come 
to the earth before the crucifixion. So they grew up in which the church was Jewish. That's, that's what the church was at that time. And they, they understood the Jewish uh, tradition. They understood the Jewish customs. They understood the Jewish uh, scriptures. Um, and, and yet they heard the message of Jesus and they became Christians. They, they put their trust in Jesus. And in putting their trust in Jesus, one of the things that they faced, it, faced was persecution. In the uh, middle school, uh, Sunday school class today, we talked a lot about persecution and, and looking at exactly what the persecution they were facing at that time and, and the pressure even from the church, from the Jewish church, for them to leave Christianity behind and to remain as Jews and continue their synagogue worship and going to the temple, etc. And there was a temptation for each of them to go back. But it wasn't just them, right? I mean, isn't that common throughout Scripture? Do you remember the, the uh, Israelites as they were rescued from Egypt? They were enslaved in Egypt. They were horribly mistreated in Egypt. Moses sets them free, and what do they say? I wish we were back in Egypt if we'd only died there, right? And they're like, well, you know, we should have stayed slaves instead of having to deal with all this. And, and so they, that, that's maybe our heart, right? Is, is we have a tendency to lean back and to want to go back to what we had before instead of moving forward. In the book of Hebrews, there are two, two major warning passages that we see. And the first is in uh, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. And uh, in, in this passage, um, he's, he's, he's beginning a transition. And so the, the author of Hebrews says, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain and often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. He's saying you've tasted, you've seen the gospel, you've seen the truth, you grew up in, in, with the truth all around you of this, this message of a coming Messiah. You knew that you were looking for that Messiah to come and he would take away your sins and now he's come and for you to go back away from that, there's, there's nothing left. He says you want to keep moving forward. And now in this passage that we're looking at today in chapter 10, we have this warning as well. This warning in, in just saying you need to keep moving forward. Don't give up. Don't go Go back. Keep moving forward. Move forward in faith to believe. And so this is opening up the next chapter, which is going to be all about faith. And we're going to spend several weeks in, in walking through chapter 11 together. But the author is strongly urging these believers to move forward in faith. Well, we're tempted too, aren't we? We're tempted. Kids... Uh, teens, you know, you're growing up in the faith and you're learning the gospel and, and yet you live in a world that is, that is uh, giving you other ideas and is challenging your faith and, and will begin to tell you that, that uh, your faith is, is in things that aren't true, that it's uh, the myths of Christianity and, and you'll face all of this and the temptation will come upon you and the temptation to leave Christianity behind. But for us as adults, you know, we, we may face that as well from time to time as, as we go through the difficulties of this life, as we see the, the, the horrible things that are done even within the church 
Sometimes the temptation is on us to leave, but sometimes the greater temptation for us as adults is to just blend in, right? To just settle in and just settle for, for just uh, going to church, and that'll, that'll do, for, for, for choosing to, to just be a Christian, if you will, and not have to be a disciple of Jesus. And that, that pressure is on all of us. And for each and every person who's here today, God is urging you to move forward in faith. Let's consider how we can do that as the passage teaches us that. And the first is, we have to remember what's at stake. Um, Verses 26 through uh, 31. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Um, Last trip to Belize... Um, I think it was Daryl and I, um, and then uh, Kathy and Karen went. And that was, uh, COVID broke out in the United States while we were gone. Um, We thought it was interesting. On the way there, we got scolded for using wipes to wipe down the seats. And on the way back, everybody, many people had like hazmat suits. So there's this change that happened while we were there. But one of the things that happened, I think it was at that trip, that Daryl and I uh, were invited to go with these two men. And we were going to drive them. And so we got in the car and they were going to take us. And we didn't exactly know where we were going. And they didn't exactly speak great English. And we didn't even speak any Spanish. So we're, we're like, okay, we trust you. And we're going. And here we are riding with these guys. And, and Daryl's in the back with one of the guys who has a big old machete. And we're driving along and they say, okay, turn here. It's like, well, turn here. That's a sugarcane field. And so we're going to turn down the sugarcane field? Yep. Okay, and so we turn down the sugarcane field, and then there's just cane all around us. And then we turn down inside the cane even more, and we keep getting deeper and deeper into there. And we're, we're well aware of the fact we're in Central America, and there's a guy in the back that doesn't speak English, and he's got a machete. And at that time, the machete, I don't know about you, but it seemed like it was, it, I mean, it was that was a machete machete. I mean, it was, it was uh, maybe a William Wallace-style sword uh, that, that was there. Now, these are two very kind men, and so we stopped, and, and where we stopped, we saw that there were some coconut palms. And so what they were doing is taking us out to coconuts. And so they, got, they needed to take some coconuts for dinner that night, and, and they got out the coconuts, and the machete then proved really work helpful as they took a coconut. Have any of you, you've opened up coconuts before? Anybody? A couple? Okay, yeah. And so they take it, and, you know, I could see us working with it, but they're just like, whack, whack. You know, and I'd have like, okay, there's four fingers. Now I've got three. And, but, but they were just working their way down, and they got to the, the middle. But they had to break through that thick shell before they could get to the middle that had this, this sweet milk, and, 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 and then the meat would be inside. But they had to get through that, that thick shell. And that's the, 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 the point of the illustration that I want us to find. I don't know about you, but if I were trying to live, and I didn't know about coconuts, and I'd see one, Never in my wildest imagination would I think that this is a source of water or of anything to eat. And I would hit it, I would think, okay, so 
this is where this island gets its rocks. They apparently grow from trees, and that's as far as I would go. And, but, but they were able to break through the shell and find that which was helpful. And I say that because I think that in, in some ways, this first section can be a little bit like a coconut for us. And I think it's really easy for us to get caught up in the shell and to just really focus on that. And the shell looks like it's substantive and, and it looks like it's just a tremendous truth and a, and a wonderful thing. Because we read the shell and the shell, we, we, we read things um, like, uh, let's try to work our way through there, um, a fury of fire. We read about that they die without mercy. We see the severer punishment. Vengeance is mine and the great one. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And we read those and we feel like, yes, that's substance. I mean, that's, that's, that's a powerful God. That's a great, great, uh, huge God who's, who's a God of justice. And, and yes, that's all true. But I believe that's just the shell. I think that the point that he's trying to make to those he's writing to and to us is found in the other words that it's easy for us to miss. The meat is, he talks about the truth. He talks about a sacrifice for sins. He writes about the Son of God and the blood of the covenant. He writes about us being sanctified and the Spirit of grace. Isn't that interesting? that both of those concepts are found in these same verses. But the shell of it, of, of looking at, here's, here's this element of judgment, is all around the meat of helping us see the incredibly kind and gracious God and the rich salvation that He has provided for us. You see, this whole section is really trying to say to us there's only one way of salvation. There's just one. And if you, if you, if you turn away from that one way of salvation, there's, nothing, there's not another. This is the only one. So recognize how great a salvation this is. Remember what's at stake. It's this one salvation. And this one salvation is that He alone paid the debt. He's not using a scare tactic of saying, you better keep it up or he's going to come get you. Right? That's not, that's not what he's trying to get at. He's trying to say there, there is judgment. That is a reality when you're outside of him. But look at the salvation that you've had. He has saved you from that judgment. You don't have to go there. You have something better. And he wants us to focus on that, which is better, that there is only one salvation. There's only one sacrifice, as he talks about, in verse 26. Verse 26, he says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. But the idea is, but if we don't, there is a sacrifice for sin. It isn't that there are a lot of sacrifices for sin. It isn't that there's many opportunities. There is a sacrifice for sin. The Jews that would receive this, they understood sacrifices. 
They understood that there was a daily sacrifice for sin that they had to make when they had sinned, or if they had unknowingly sinned, that they had to offer a sacrifice on a daily basis. They knew of the annual sacrifices that they had to offer. They knew about the Day of Atonement, in which the sacrifices had to be made in Jerusalem at the, at the, the temple at that time. They knew of, of the great sacrifice that was done in the feast every year of Passover, and that God's wrath would pass over the people. They knew about those, but they also knew that the blood of bulls and of goats and of birds were insufficient to save their soul. They knew that wasn't it. They knew that in those sacrifices, what they were doing was appealing to God to forgive them. And it wasn't the sacrifice that did that. But they also knew, these who were believers, that Jesus was that sacrifice. That all of these other things pointed to him. They prefigured him, but he was the fulfillment of it. He himself was the only sacrifice for sin. And we know that. It's Jesus who he says is the Son of God. That if, 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 if those who were Jews in the Old Testament would reject the law of Moses, they would die. But how much more if we turn our back on the only sacrifice that's ever available, the only sacrifice that could ever save a person, if we turn away from that, where are we going to find ourselves? He says it's far worse, so don't turn your back on that. Instead, continue to put your trust in Jesus, the Son of God who offered himself for you. Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, and he offered himself as a sacrifice to pay the price for your sins. Isaiah 53, which these Jewish Christians would have known well, speaks of it beautifully. He says in, in uh, verse 5, But he, and it is speaking of Jesus, was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening, that is the discipline for our well-being, fell upon him, and by his scourging we're healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. They knew that the Messiah was coming. This is speaking of the Messiah. We know the Messiah's name. He's the only sacrifice. The only one. Who has done this? And in verse 10 we read, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Friends, as we remember what's at stake, let me remind you, he died for your sins. How else can you be saved? What other way is there? You can't die for your own sins because your sins are too great. You can't die for your own sins because you have sinned. You would also have to live a righteous life. There's no other way. There's nothing else that can be done. Remember what's at stake. And that is that He has paid the price. 
and then cherish the Son. To cherish the Son. Um, some of you maybe have read the book uh, That Hideous Strength by C.S. Lewis. Some of you? Yeah. Incredible. Really slow start. Um, so if you're going to read it, uh, be patient. It, it picks up and it's fantastic. I believe it's my favorite C.S. Lewis book. It's incredibly profound. There's a scene in which uh, one of the main characters, Mark Studdick, is having to go through the objective training. And uh, the reality is it's the exact opposite. It's trying to get him uh, free from Christianity. It's, if you will, almost a, uh, a deconstructing of his faith, even though he didn't have much of a faith. And there's one point where he's made at the very end to where they, he walks into a room and he sees a crucifix on the ground. And he's told, stomp on it and spit on it and insult it. Okay, go. And he just stops. And he says, well, why would I do that? As he realized just that, it's, and he says, and, and, he's, and the, one of the things Lewis says is, one of the things that bothered him the most is that it was just wood. That's not a person. It's just a piece of wood. Why does this make such a big deal? Why do you have to do this? Why do you have this image? What is, what is going on? And he begins to recognize, and it becomes a turning point in his entire life, and maybe the, the uh, entirety of his soul comes to this moment in which he has to realize just how vulgar and how absolutely repulsive it would be to stomp on even that image which was nothing but an image. And he himself didn't even have any religious element. And I've, I've always been struck by that and how that, that captured him. Notice what we, what we read in this passage. that He says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving, says, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. To go on sinning willfully. And that means that after knowing the truth, it's the Jewish believers who have come to trust in Jesus and then they, they turn away and they say, no, I'm going to go back. I'm going to walk in rebellion to Jesus. I'm going to join in with the, the, the Jews of my synagogue who were persecuting Christians. I'm going to join in with those who despise Jesus. I'm going to join with them to doing that willingly after already knowing. What are they experiencing? He says they'll be trampling underfoot the Son of God. They'll be stomping on Him. And He draws that to our attention to really understand what's at stake. Are we going to cherish the Son? To recognize who he is. Jesus says in John 14, 15, that if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. So are we going to go on in this, this rebellion, or are we going to love him, to cherish him? To cherish him. He's the one, and I want you to just think about this for a moment. He's the one who wrote your name by his own hand in the book of life before he ever said, let there be light. You realize that? Your name as an individual, was written in the book of life. He's the one who sought you out. 
Even though you were living in rebellion against Him, even though you did not know Him, yet He knew you. And He sent His Spirit to come into your life and to open up your eyes that you would understand the Gospel and to put faith inside you so that you would respond to the call of the Gospel so that you would indeed be saved. He's the one who lived and died so that your sins would be taken away and you had a righteous covering. He's the one who said to the Father, Father, adopt this one as one of my brothers and sisters. Let them be your son and daughter, just as I am. He's the one who sends His Spirit, who works inside you even now, who is sanctifying you, who is working in you a hatred for that which is wicked and a love for that which is good. He's the one who will one day glorify you He's the one who will receive you in glory, wiping away the tears and holding you in his hands and saying, well done. We can cherish that one, can't we? That's who we cherish. We don't want to trample. We want to cherish the Son of Jesus Christ. So if we are going to move forward in faith, we begin by remembering what's at stake. What's at stake? There's only one salvation. The second thing we're going to do is we're going to remember the past. Verses 32 through 34. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of suffering, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourself a better possession and a lasting one. In the Old Testament, we see it regularly that Israel was reminded of the past, right? Israel was told, remember Egypt, right? Remember being taken out of Egypt. Remember the Red Sea. Remember crossing the Jordan. Remember Jericho. Remember all of these great events of God's God's working on their behalf. And he reminded them to remember the past. Well, It's not just the Old Testament uh, Israelites that needed to do that. We need to do that ourselves to remember uh, God's provision. Consider your life. What has God done? I enjoy December 23rd uh, each year because it's a reminder of what happened in 1982 when God opened up my eyes that I might believe the gospel. And to consider what he's done since then. What's he done in your life? To think about that for just a time and to, to consider how you have experienced him in your life. Remember that you endured suffering. Verse 32 and 33, he talks about that. But you endured suffering, and, and each of us endures it in, in different ways and in, in different times. I know myself, after I became a Christian, I, I did face suffering and the loss of relationships, the loss of friendships, the loss of uh, family to some extent, uh, that uh, there were those who were convinced it was just a, a phase I was going through. It's been a long phase, uh, but uh, nonetheless, and it, and it, and it, is something that we face. And we have our friends who, who minimize our faith, right? Yeah. Yeah, and it's discouraging that, that that's the case. We have, we have others that will just reject us for our faith, and they really don't want to be around us very much anymore for whatever reason. The fact is also another suffering that we endure is we fight doubts, right? 
even with the disciples. We read the story that so many disciples were leaving Jesus and he turns to the twelve and he says, are you going to leave me too? And Peter, Peter says, Lord, where would we go? And it's almost as though, yeah, we've thought about it. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, we've considered this a lot. We had meeting just last night thinking, yeah, maybe we ought to leave. But where would we go? You've got the words of eternal life. And the reality is doubts come in. Right after Jesus was crucified, what happened to the disciples? They scattered. Peter, he said, I'm going fishing, right? That's what he's got to do. That's what he knew. This didn't work. I'm going to my fallback position. And off he went. And, and, and we face those same doubts. And a part of the suffering that we face because we still live in a sin-cursed world and we still fight with sin in our own lives. We face hardships and sadness in our life too. And we doubt then sometimes too, don't we? As we go through those hardships, as things aren't working the way we thought they would work. Things aren't going as well as I'd hoped. Someone said I'd become a Christian and everything would work out great, and it just hasn't. And others say, well, it's because your faith isn't good enough. Oh, I don't know about that. I don't know how I'd have more. I don't understand. And so we wrestle with that. Those, those hardships and those difficulties. And then, and then we lose loved ones. And we prayed for them. We prayed for them and they died. And it's hard. We don't know what to do with that. And so we go through these difficulties. I'll read to you a little bit from a sermon by uh, A.J. Gossip. What a name for a preacher. Someone pointed that out yesterday. It's like, yeah, that is a bummer of a name for a preacher. Um, instead, I heard of a, 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 he's in a pastor, last name of Church. You know, he was, he, he was there, but gossip. Yeah, well, here's what he said. This gossip is really good. How did the psalmist know that those who are broken in their hearts and grieved in their minds, God heals? The psalmist write about that, right? The psalmist write about the fact that those who are broken in their hearts and grieved in their minds, God heals them. How do they know? How do they know? Because, of course... It had happened to them because they had themselves in their dark days felt his unfailing helpfulness and tenderness and the touch of wonderfully gentle hands. And it's true. As you remember the past and you remember what God has done in your life and you remember those hardships and you remember those difficult times, do you remember the gentle hands that carried you? One author said that they're living their life as though the water is up to their chin. They said, but the hand of God is under my chin, ever keeping it above the water. You've experienced that, right? Remember that. Remember what He has done. And remember that He used you. Verse 33. Partly by being made a public spectacle through the reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your properties, knowing that you have for yourself a better possession and a lasting one. I love that line, you showed sympathy to the prisoners. He writes this. To those who are going through incredible sufferings themselves. And he says, but you know what? 
You cared for those who were in hard times. You weren't so worried about your own self that you weren't able to reach out in compassion to other people with what they're facing. And I say this, he's saying it to the group he's writing to, and I say that to this group here, because I've watched you. It's a beautiful thing that you have indeed cared for other people in beautiful ways. You spoke a word. Remember a time when you spoke a word? It wasn't even planned, but it turned out really good. You thought, well, that was brilliant. But you know in your heart, yeah, God was carrying me. (laughs) But you spoke it because you chose to speak. You knew, I need to give a word in this moment. Maybe you gave a hug to someone who was just hurting. You didn't know what to do. didn't know what to say. I remember one time I prayed and my prayer was, God, I don't know what to say. It was a couple who had twins. The twins were just born and both of them died. They were a little bit too premature. What do you say? Nothing to say. But I prayed. And I prayed telling God, I got nothing. I got nothing. It's all you, Lord. Then you reach out and you hold that person. Maybe you just quietly listened when someone was pouring out their heart. Just really struggling. You didn't say a word. You just listened. And in listening, they felt heard. Maybe you just truly prayed for someone. To where the prayer wasn't just a, let me go through the motions and say the right words. But you poured out your heart to God. And you felt the misery that that person was living through. And you told God about it on that person's behalf. And you begged Him that He would intervene in their life. In each of those situations, God used you. He used you to minister to someone else. Remember the past. Remember what you've endured and remember that God has used you. Because if we're going to move forward in faith, we first of all begin with remembering. We have to remember what's at stake. We have to remember the past. But then, then it enters the now. After we've remembered the past, after we've remembered uh, what's at stake, now what am I going to do? Now what? Now I'm going to live by faith. Now I'm going to step forward. I'm going to move. And remember that faith is something that does not exist in the mind. It's informed by the mind. But faith exists in the will. It's in the choices that we make that we believe. It isn't believing it to think it. It is believing it to live it. I use the definition of faith, and you've heard it before, that faith is living consistent with perceived truth. Thinking is thinking perceived truth. Faith is living it. I'm going to live it out. I'm going to put it into practice. And we all live by faith. You know, we do it all the time, right? You put the key in the car, in the ignition, right? And you turn it, and what do you expect to happen? The engine should start, right? Yep. Or it's going to lurch forward, and it's going to remind you you need to put in the clutch. Right? Either way, but you expect something to happen, right? And you, you expect it, and you, you just get in and you do it, right? Why? Because you believe it'll work. Now, some of you are a lot brighter than I am, 
some of you know why it works, right? And so for you, you understand the, the electrical current and how that's going to go, and it's going to move something, it's going to make something else do this, and then it's going to all happen. And that tells you how much I know about it. Okay, I was being very, very technical there, so I hope I didn't lose anybody. Others of you, like me, believe it will start because someone told you that's what you do to start a car, right? And I believe that person, right? I'm pretty sure they're not uh, doing some prank and, and misleading me. I think that works, right? Others of you simply believe it because of experience, right? Whatever that may be, we believe. We live by faith in that. We live by faith. We believe that the water coming from the faucet is good to drink, right? We believe that the mushrooms in the front yard are not good to eat, right? We believe that to be the case. And so we act in faith. We live in faith all the time. Notice what he says as we uh, move forward. I should have, been, uh, should, have, should have been reading verse 35 through 39, so let's, let's go there. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. And he says, do not throw away your confidence. Verse 35. Do not throw away your confidence. Your confidence. Your confidence is tied to your faith, right? You're confident when you turn that key, it's going to work, right? As a matter of fact, it's kind of surprising when it doesn't. Because you're so confident in it. Your faith has you in confidence, and we live in confidence. Don't throw away that confidence. Instead, live by faith. That by faith, and let me slow down for just a moment. Faith is living consistent with perceived truth. And that truth can be expressed in propositions, right? And some of those propositions I already threw out that we believe all the time. We believe that the water is safe. We believe the mushrooms are not. We believe these propositions. There are thousands of them that we live by all the time. I want us to look at two propositions this morning for us to consider that we need to live as we live by faith. These two propositions. The first is, you are saved. Okay? That's the first proposition that I want you to live as though you believe it. He talks about my righteous one will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. The just will live by faith. This is a a, a, a quote from Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. In Habakkuk 2 verse 4 is the first time we read this idea that the just will live by faith, that the righteous will live by faith. It's quoted three times in the New Testament. Interestingly, it's quoted in the book of Romans, it's quoted in the book of Galatians, and it's quoted in the book of Hebrews. And it's interesting that in each one, the focus is on a different element of that sentence. In Romans, the book of Romans is the great message of the gospel, right? Of what it means to be saved, what it is to be justified. And so there the emphasis, the righteous, the justified, they live by faith. In Galatians, where it's talking about how we're living out this faith, how we're living out this gospel, the emphasis is the righteous will live by faith. And in Hebrews, which is a constant push to faith, the emphasis is the righteous will live by faith. And so we get that emphasis upon our living by faith. But who's the one who lives by faith? 
the righteous one. I've told the story of a, a number of years ago that I went to General Assembly and I got on a very long elevator ride with a, a gentleman who was a PCA pastor. And as soon as we got on the, pa- on the uh, elevator, he started telling me about a sermon he preached. Okay, I guess I'm in for it. And we got 17 floors to go. So we're, we're moving on down. And, and he says, I came to my congregation and I asked my congregation, how many of you believe that you are more righteous than, and he listed one of the members of the congregation, and most congregations stood up. He says, fantastic. How many of you believe that you're more righteous than the elders? And a few of them sat down. How many of you believe you're more righteous than me? Everybody else stood back up. No, <laughs> then more, more sat down. He says, how many believe you're more righteous than Billy Graham? Most of them sat down, about four people. How many believe that you're as righteous as Jesus? One person stood, and he said, you're correct. Because you have the full righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to you in faith to realize that that is your covering. You are the righteous ones. And so as we greet one another as as St. Andrew, he can know that's who he is in Jesus Christ, that he is indeed a saint of God. He's been given the very righteousness of Christ. He has been justified. When you believe you're saved, you believe that Jesus died for your sins, right? That means that you're forgiven. What would it look like if you lived as though you believed you were forgiven? A number of years ago, a friend of ours, she, she struggled in some ways like I do with Q's and G's when she'd spell. And so she wrote to me one time and she said she was just having a hard time wrestling with quilt. With quilt. I was able to figure out uh, that she wasn't having a difficulty with her sewing project. <laughs> but she was dealing with guilt. But it, it gave me an image. And I thought about how many of us have guilt quilts? Now, quilt, you might get a quilt that is made up of everybody gives you a patch, right? And everybody puts their patch into your quilt, right? Now, if you think about that, that every patch is someone else's expectations on you where you failed, Right? You don't call enough, right? You're not tall enough. Your jokes aren't funny. Wouldn't be in mine. But whatever those different areas, you don't measure up. You've got all these things, and we have this. And you know, all the patches are, are filthy when they come to you, right? All of them have gone through the mud. A few of them have fallen into the toilet, and they're just put on there. The dog has made a mess on several of them. And there they are. And you've made this quilt of all of this guilt. And you know what's weird? Is sometimes we feel really comfortable sitting down underneath that guilt quilt. When Jesus has offered to us instead his righteousness. Every act of obedience that he ever committed for the Father is sewn into the fabric of this magnificent quilt. And it is spotless. And instead of sitting underneath that, we choose the guilt quilt. Why would we do that? Because we don't believe we're forgiven. Believe you're forgiven. Get rid of that guilt quilt. You're also adopted. You've been given all the rights and privileges that belong to the Son of God as His son or daughter. If you believe that, You can walk around this world with your head held high. You don't have to kowtow because you are a son or daughter of the Most High God. 
you have incredible value and worth. You don't have to try to find it in the opinion of other people. You can rest in the opinion of your God. And he says, that's my child. And I own them for myself. And he's also sanctifying you. This gives great hope. He's not done. He's not done. You still fall, right? Most of you. A few of you, maybe not. But most of you still fall. Does that mean it's all over? Nope. That means you're one sin less, one sin closer, one failure closer to the time when we'll never do it again. Because His Spirit is working inside you. All that to say, this is what it is to believe that you are saved. Do you believe that you are saved? And I better ask, are you saved? Have you ever put your trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? Do you believe that He died for you? If you've never trusted that, I would invite you this day, today, right now, ask Him, Lord, forgive me because I've sinned against you. And then live as though you're forgiven. The second proposition is that you will endure. You will endure. That's the message that He gives us. He tells us that we're going to be able to endure. He's going to continue to sustain us. And I know believing that is so important. I, at least three times a week, I try to go down to the gym and uh, run on a treadmill. Um, it's probably more like clomping, but I'll call it running anyway. And, and uh, I have a certain time frame that I want to run, and I run, and then I walk, and then I run. And, and I've kind of worked this out. And, and I know there are some days that I just get started, and I am aware of every single part of my body because every part of it is screaming out to me, I'm going to die, right? And it's just telling me there's no way. You are not going to be able to make it. You've got to quit. And I, and I know there are times in which those thoughts are in my mind. And I'm just focusing on how much it hurts and how uncomfortable I am and, and how early in the morning and how I've really got other things to do. And I get all of this going through in my mind. And when I'm focusing on all of that, you know what? I usually don't make it to the, to the time that I need to make it to. But when I'm able to be focused and say, nope, nope, I've got this. And I can credit uh, Ben one day told me, oh, you can run farther than that. And it's like, Yes, I can. <laughs> and so, so I said, I can run farther than that. And as I remember that, I can run farther than that. I can reach that time frame. I can double that time frame. No problem. Here we go. And I just keep focused on that. You know what? I, I make it, right? Isn't that true in our lives? If we go through the hardships of this life and we think, oh, I'll never make it, it's probably true. Not unlike what my wrestling coach used to tell me. He said, your body follows your head. And his point was, when you're on all fours, if your head's down, that's where you're going. So get your head up. But you know, that has truth in the rest of our life too, isn't it? Get your head up. To believe, you will endure. You will make it. You'll face hardships. I'll endure. You'll face temptation. I'll endure and stand against it. So that James 4, 7, which tells us to resist the devil and he'll flee from you, becomes a truth. I'm going to resist him because I can endure this. I don't have to give in. I'm going to resist and he will flee. I will. I will endure and believe that you will endure. This whole message, this whole section, I believe, is calling on us to move forward. I've told you that um, last year our theme was to follow Jesus and this year it's to move forward. 
Because in chapter 6, the, the author of Hebrews makes a shift, and now he's pushing. He's saying, okay, let's not just compare Jesus with the past, but let's look forward. Let's move forward. And to move forward, we're going to have to move forward in faith. He's telling us that as he's beginning to introduce the concept of faith in the next uh, chapter. Chapter 11 is all about what faith is and how we live it out in our lives. And he's challenging each one of us to move forward in faith. If we're going to do that, we must take three steps. The three steps to move forward in faith is, number one, I'm going to remember what's at stake. Number two, I'm going to remember the past. And number three, I'm going to live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself up for me. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the the joy of being able to gather with your people to worship you today. Father, I pray for every person here. I pray for myself that you will help us, O God, to be men, women, children of faith. That you'll help us to move forward, that we won't fall back, that we won't throw away our confidence, but that we will move forward in faith. Father, make this church into such a church. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.